This fear of the end of the world is not new or something people have never felt before. The names of the enemies are new, but a couple generations ago, the fearsome thing was a nuclear war launched by hostile communists. In Luther's day, people had a profound sense that the world was getting so rotten that Jesus was just around the corner. People in the first century also felt much the same. Paul's words here are, in this sense, timeless. First, he addresses everyone's great fear of the end of this world, that we will be held accountable to God and judged. Paul does not refute that, but he tells us that Jesus is making us blameless. Welcome to the Sandhills Lutheran Ministry Podcast. I am Pastor John Edding. The title of this sermon on the first Sunday of Advent is God is Making Me Blameless. This is a sermon on 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9-13. through 13. Thanks be to God. Let's get to the sermon. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we lit that first candle in the Advent wreath this Sunday, and I enjoyed singing that song, that as we start contemplating what that means. Lighting a new candle, beginning a new year, a new reading cycle. Uh, We're focusing in our readings this year on the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke will occupy uh, our attention primarily this year. Gospel of Luke uh, has some great themes. Uh, It's themes of love for the little, the least, and the lost. It's portrayal of Jesus for all of humanity. Uh, Luke also decided to emphasize the order and the reign of God. Uh, That that is important to what we have to say. And this is the first Sunday of Advent. And we light that one little candle in the darkness at the end of November. And it's just going to keep getting darker in the course of this year. Uh, through December, but also I I speak metaphorically as well, too, about the darkness. Uh, We light that one little candle in the darkness, and and that light will grow, will continue to light more candles. And that means, and that reminds us, that Jesus will draw near as the season progresses. But today, you could say that we are in a dark place. Uh, With one little candle lit, And it feels like the darkness will overwhelm us. And I'm speaking about the news. You know, the news is not good, so good, which which comes to us through the pages of our papers, the screens of our televisions and computers. The darkness seems to be winning. Now, we seem to be living in a profound awareness of the end of the world. Now, you might think that is interesting thing to say. But watch our films. Um, and you might notice that one of the great formula for making a blockbuster is to include some monster or archvillain, right, in, in the movie, uh, who has in mind the death and the destruction of the whole world. Uh, it's this time of the year when you perhaps... You know, you go uh, city, uh, you look at, you could do some shopping and, 
And you may, you know, take in a movie like I've done in the past. Why? Well, I, I looked, I looked at some of the selection of the movies that are playing in the theater this weekend, and Marvel Studios, surprise, has come out with another superhero movie. I believe this one's called The Eternals. And here's what I mean, you know, about some monster or arch-villain, um, death and destruction of the whole world. So, the Eternals, the race of immortal beings with superhuman powers who have secretly lived on Earth for a thousand years, according to the movie description. They reunite to battle the evil deviants. Wow. Um, I, I just wondered where were the Eternals when Thanos, you know, snapped his finger and half the world's population just turned into dust. Um, oh, well, I guess we have to just watch the movie for the answer. And yes, I watch far too many Marvel movies. <laughs> anyway, you stumble out of the theater. You stumble out of the theater and you turn your attention to the news. And guess what? You find several other fixations on the end of the world. Climate change, environmental degradation, People are talking about end of democracy, artificial intelligence taking over, giant tech firms listening in on our conversation and mining our lives for data. We're not focused on some beast like John's book of Revelation, but we, what do we fear? We fear algorithms. We fear Skynet. Uh, <laughs> and a world in which all the polar bears have starved to death. Now, you may not buy into some or any of the above scenarios, but what you have, what you have is a context of fear in which we are living. This just seems to pour out uh, the media and the fear in which we're living and breathing. And let me just be blunt here. Uh, I am not saying that there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> I suffer from a bit of claustrophobia, right? And, and if I'm afraid of tight spaces and you tell me that there's nothing to fear, if I sit in the corner of a crowded booth at the restaurant, I am still not going into that corner of the booth, okay? I am going, I'm going to be sitting near the open eye. <laughs> so this fear of the end of the world, it's not new. It, it, it's not something people have, or it's, it's something or something that people have never felt before. The names of the enemies are new. But a couple of generations ago, the, the fearsome thing was a nuclear war launched by Hostile communists. In Luther's day, people had a profound sense that the world was getting so rotten that Jesus was around the corner. People in the first century also felt much the same. So let's take a look at that. The folks in Thessalonica, and I'm using the text, 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13, and you can follow along with, with me on this. So the folks in Thessalonica, they had only met Paul 
a short while ago, his, his preaching, though, had so stirred up the local synagogue that they drove him out of the town. When things cooled off a bit, then Paul sent Timothy. Timothy had been working with him. He wanted uh, Timothy to check up on them. Maybe his face wasn't as well known. And through him, through Timothy, they asked Paul some questions. Most of these questions were about the end of the world. Now, this letter is Paul's reply. Now, like most people of those days and this day, they were afraid of the end of the world. They dreaded it. And they could sense that God was not happy with what his world had become. And the audit of the books would be severe. So it also appears that Paul wrote this letter because Timothy not only brought back a a good report, actually, that this little group of Christians was still alive and well. They were standing firm. And even in the face of persecution, fierce persecution, but they also had questions. And you can imagine since they had only three weeks of catechism with their teacher uh, before their teacher got driven out of town, they had plenty of questions, specifically. They had some serious questions about the end of the world, questions which Paul addresses in chapters 4 and 5 of this brief letter. But before he gets there, He spends the first three chapters just talking to them and preparing them to hear what he has to say. He he really is addressing the question that they're not asking, but which lies under the question. And we'll get to that. But first of all, they are afraid of the last day. So Paul is writing to this group of, of folks in Thessalonica who shared that idea, that fear with us. He spends the first three chapters setting their their hearts at ease. So chapter one, he tells them that Jesus will rescue them from God's wrath on that day. The wrath still comes, but Jesus will rescue them. Okay, chapter two then, Paul tells them that on the last day, he will stand before Jesus and he will brag about them and their faith. He's just so proud of them. He is, you could feel the joy that Paul has for them because of them. And it comes out of the letter. And finally, here in chapter 3, we get the good news that God is the one who establishes their hearts as blameless in holiness before God at the coming of Jesus. And that is not their work. It is God's work. And yes, it takes shape in their lives of love and service to one another But that is also God at work in them. And we'll go into that a little bit deeper. But let's just emphasize this first of all. Paul was on the run from this place. He'd been kicked out, chased down the road to Berea. And then at Berea, he got chased out again, out of there too. And he feared that the same pressures that had been brought to bear in this little community of believers he left behind. But when Timothy came back, he returned with a good report. Things were going well. Paul's joy here is that God's kingdom is resilient. How has it become resilient? Not just strong, but resilient. 
The poured out Holy Spirit brings a mysterious strength to God's people. That includes us. You'll notice that Paul has two prayers. Let's take a look at those two prayers for the Thessalonians and for us of verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So the first thing is, he only had three weeks with them. He's praying that God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus would bring them together to direct Paul's way to them, to supply what is lacking in their faith, and that God would then restore those relations with the Thessalonian Christians after persecution had separated them. So that's the first prayer. And the second prayer, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So the second prayer is that God would cause their love to increase and abound for one another and for all. This is the way he makes them blameless in the judgment, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he makes them blameless. It's by faith that God will make them blameless. But right now he is working blameless righteousness in them and us through the love of one another. So again, let's recap. First, he addresses the great fear of the end of the world, that they will be held accountable to God and judged. Paul doesn't refute that. But he tells them that Jesus is making them and us blameless. So let's, let's apply this and let's see how, what this means for us, how much of a difference this makes. Because... We could say, yes, we know the end of the story. That's great. Someday Jesus will come back and all will be great. But what about right now? This is currently no fun for a lot of reasons, you know, right now. Sin, death, the devil, and so on. But Paul adds in a little twist, which we're going to focus on right here. He says, Jesus is making us blameless by filling our hearts with love for one another and for all people right now. Of course, make no mistake, Jesus' great sacrifice is what purifies us and makes us wholly blameless in the judgment. But that doesn't mean that it's disconnected from our lives right now. Jesus applied to my life takes its strongest and most visible form. When I love with his love and I serve my fellow human being as his hands and feet, this is connected to the salvation which Jesus worked on the cross and the empty tomb. He did not die to apply some magic formula or magic potion to my future resurrected self. He died in this world, in this life, to redeem you and to redeem me right now and make you and me a living witness of his love. By the love which you and I love, by the service which you and I serve, Jesus saves you and me. Again, we're not accomplishing blamelessness by our own works or deeds. Jesus did that on the cross. 
God is saving us from our sins, from death and from the devil and, and all of his schemes. But you might want to think of it this way. Jesus could take the most foul sinner in the world and forgive them and make them whole on that last day. Indeed, the man or woman who has the deathbed conversion will undergo such a transformation. But we are not all just biding our time until he till the end. Um, we're not just twiddling our thumbs and just waiting. Rather, Jesus is about the purification process right now. That's what Paul is saying. He's making us fit for heaven. He does that through the love which he pours into our hearts. And when we love another person, and when we feed the hungry person, when we forgive our neighbor, we, and do anything that looks a little Jesus, we are taking one step closer to heaven. And Jesus will, of course, he'll close the gap, and there will be a gap on the last day, but he's not waiting for that moment of resurrection. He is doing it right now. And this is what we do during Advent. We repent. And Advent repentance is not about earning Jesus' salvation, but it's about becoming what we truly are, the purified, blameless, holy children of God in some way this day. Well, the married couple had not been married at all that many years, and when they got a letter one summer day, and it was from the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS of the United States. So the husband, let's call him Eric. He just set that letter aside as he was sorting through the mail. He really did not want to open that. You see, Eric did his own taxes, which was always a bit of an adventure. And his record-keeping skills and mathematics um, was always a bit, was, was not were not entirely to be trusted. Maybe that's why he became a pastor. <laughs> yes, this is a, a story from a pastor, Pastor Eric, let's say. And then on top of that, the rules which govern the clergy taxes are a bit Byzantine, so Eric was sure that he was being audited. So it was with more than a little trepidation that he and his wife sat down at the table with the letter opener and they slit open that envelope and imagine their, their surprise. Imagine their surprise when a check for over $1,500 slipped out of that envelope into Eric's hand. Now that was a quite a lot of money for those newlyweds and he had been serving a vacancy and hence they had a a little more income. Now it had appeared that when he was supposed to subtract something, he added. <laughs> so Eric should never be an accountant. The IRS, though, computers caught it and refunded the money. The folks in Thessalonica had only met Paul a short while ago. Now his preaching had stirred up the local synagogue that they drove him out of town. And when things cooled down, 
Paul sent Timothy to check up on them, and through him, they asked Paul questions, some questions, most of them about the end of the world. This letter is Paul's reply. Now, like most people of those days and this day, they were afraid of the end of the world. They dreaded it. They could sense that God was not happy with what his world had become. His audit of the books would be severe. But look carefully. Look carefully at what Paul is saying here. He is trying to make them less afraid about the end of the world in this first part of his letter. And do you hear what he is saying? Do you hear what he says? Jesus establishes your hearts. Jesus establishes establishes my heart blameless in holiness before God at the coming of Christ. God's judgment, his stern condemnation of this world is not for us. Christ has made us blameless. So rejoice this Advent season and look forward to the coming of Jesus. You are blameless before God. A check of far greater value has slid out of this letter from Paul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.